You're listening to Sound Opinions, and later in the show, we're going to talk about D'Angelo's 2000 album, Voodoo, with author Faith Pennick. But first, we have some seasonally appropriate songs about witches. You know, witches, Greg. Yeah. Uh, I think witches get a bad name, you know? I, uh, I lived in Minneapolis for uh, twice for a couple of years each time. And uh, for whatever reason, Minneapolis was a big uh, uh, pagan, Wiccan uh, <laughs> sort of underground community. I have friends who are witches. They use their powers for good, not evil. And so uh, we decided uh, we've never done uh, among our Halloween songs. We've done monsters. I think we did zombies. We, we've done you name it. We've done it. Right? We haven't done witches. So it's time to give the witches some. No. Yeah, absolutely right, Jim. And uh, there, there are many, many to choose from, so I'm intrigued about what your first choice is going to be. I'm going to start with one of my all-time favorite songs by The Kinks. You know, in the mid-60s, all of the, uh, the great British bands had their turn at going uh, whole hog psychedelic or partly psychedelic. The Kinks, you know, were always uh, more about the songwriting and the sociological observations of Ray Davis, right? But Wicked Annabella is a great, freaky, kind of psychedelic rock song about uh, a witch named Annabella. Uh, a little dark and sinister, the melody, um, the lyrics, you know, telling us, uh, uh, setting the scene very novelistically in a dark and misty house where no Christian man has been. Wicked Annabella mixes a brew that no one's ever seen. Uh, kind of a cliche of the evil witch, not the uh, good uh, white Wiccan, but uh, but you gotta love it. And it's done with good humor and uh, a, a great time. Uh, and, you know, there are lots of little demons, Greg, enslaved by Annabella, as the kinks will now tell us. In the dark and misty Immortal, wicked Annabella by the Kinks. Mr. Cott, have you got a witch song? I do indeed, Jim. Uh, we both hit on this one, and I think it's uh, in some ways obvious, Season of the Witch by Donovan. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't see how we could have left it out of this show. I just think it's really, uh, it's a song. And the reason I think we both love it is, is, is it connects on so many levels. It's not just a song about a witch per se, but about a mood, an atmosphere, a, uh, a sense of... Uh, Imp impending doom, <laughs> yes, <laughs> uh, yes. paranoia. <laughs> it was uh, written and recorded by Donovan in, in 1966, and uh, his whole perception at that time was sort of this lightweight balladeer from Scotland who was sort of a, a wannabe Dylan. Yeah. Uh, and I think this song kind of reset the balance a little bit. Like, there's something a little more deep about this song than maybe we gave this man credit for. 
And consider this. This is 1966. This is the year before the Summer of Love. Yeah. And he was already talking about darker times ahead. Uh, so I think in many ways, just sort of uh, looking past this sort of glorified age of Aquarius feel-good vibe that was going on at the time in youth culture and, no, you, and, and seeing something more sinister. You always uh, hear that song, you know, in documentaries and films about the Manson clan, the murders. And, sure. And, 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 you know, Altamont, you know. Yeah. yeah. Donovan saw the clouds on the horizon. Absolutely. And this song has been covered numerous times. Lana Del Rey most mm-hmm. recently covering it uh, for that uh, Scary Stories film. Very appropriate subject yes. matter uh, for that. And, you know, with, with Donovan here, what was interesting to me about here, th- this one is that he, he and his uh, the partner at the time, the collaborator musically, uh, Sean Phillips, you know, they, they wanted sort of this rock combo feel to it. And, and so they just recruited these guys who were playing in the clubs. And, you know, there's, a, there's the rumor going on that, well, uh, you know, John Paul Jones and uh, Jimmy, Jimmy Page, Page were yeah. doing a ton of sessions at that time in the London scene. Uh, did they play on this record? Because apparently they played on other Donovan mm-hmm, records. Mm-hmm. And I once asked a question to Jimmy Page. He looked at me and goes, do you have another question, Greg? Oh. <laughs> you know, didn't, didn't even want to go there. It's like, Jimmy I'm not Page. answering that question. <laughs> Page, who may or may not be a warlock, but we're doing witches on this Cor- show. Yes. Correct. So uh, we have the very witchy season of The Witch by Donovan on Sound Opinions. You got to pick up Donovan's Season of the Witch, a great pick, Greg, and uh, dive into our archives. We had a wonderful chat with Donovan uh, some years ago. I'm going next to Jethro Tull, Greg. Mm. You know, I have a real deep and abiding fondness for Jethro Tull, at least up until until Songs of the Wood, and I really could choose that entire album as a great kind of pagan romping through the woods naked in the moonlight kind of uh, around the bonfire Mm -hmm. sort of album right but the song i'm actually going to highlight is titled the witch's promise and it comes from the third album early in jethro tull's career benefit 
Um, the Witch's Promise was a, a single, 1970, and uh, it has the uh, first great uh, lineup of Jethro Tull. Ian Anderson, of course, on vocals and flute, and Martin Barres on guitar, really underrated drummer Clive Bunker, and John Evan doing mm. piano and Mellotron, okay? Lend me your ear while I call you a fool. You were kissed by a witch one night in the wood. <laughs> I, I swear, if there's 300 Jethro Tull songs, uh, 298 of them mention the wood. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I mean, it's a classic American trope, right? Nathaniel Hawthorne, witches, woods, pagans, evildoing. Right. I mean, you know, you, you got to have Jethro Tull on a witch's song list. So here they are, the witch's promise. The witch's promise was coming, and you're looking elsewhere for your own selfish Which is promised by the immortal Jethro Tull. <laughs> Thank you for letting me play Tull. I don't get to do yeah, that often you, enough. You do love them. You have a sweet spot for Jethro Tull. I have a sweet spot for Martha and the Vandellas. Yes. Um, one of my favorite Motown acts of all time. Martha Reeves, one of the great vocalists of all time from the Motown stable of great singers. Motown was not noted for its uh, albums at the time. It was not an album era in Motown. It was a singles era. And the albums usually just uh, were vehicles for releasing, you know, putting those singles on there and then surrounding them with filler. Uh, I would make the case, however, though, in 1965 that uh, Martha and the Vandellas did, in fact, put out a pretty damn great Motown record mm -hmm. uh, called Dance Party. And it fulfilled its promise. It basically had, was filled with dance tunes. Uh, in addition to uh, Nowhere to Run and Dancing in the Street, it had a bunch of other uh, lesser-known songs uh, that filled the bill. Uh, one of those was titled Mobile Lil, The Dancing Witch. <laughs> silly title, kind of silly lyrics. Mobile Lil apparently had the ability to uh, not only create every dance known to man at the time, but also to stop them at a certain hour every night. So she had these magical powers over the dance floor. She had no other skills as a witch other than at the dance floor, mm. which in the 60s, if you were a young person in the 60s, that was a pretty big deal, right? You know, and it's a silly song, admittedly. But, you know, once again, 
the Motown rhythm section. They don't care what the lyrics are talking about. They are getting down playing, you know, some funky R&B-based soul music in uh, Detroit. And you can hear it on this, that rumbling bass. I love the percussive piano on this and the, that sort of uh, funky groove that they get. You know, it wasn't necessarily a funk label. Funk wasn't really a term being thrown around uh, back then. But it, this song's funky. Um, and it is Martha and the Vandellas with Martha Reeves. Can sing the phone book and make it sound great. Yes. She does on this one. Mobile Lil, the Dancing Witch on Sound Opinions. Dancing Witch by the absolutely bewitching Martha Reeves and the Vandellas. If you've got a witch song to share, tell us on Facebook or Twitter. After a break, Greg and I will be back with more songs about witches, and then we'll dig into D'Angelo's Voodoo, a classic album dissection we've been eager to do for some time. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions from Chicago, distributed by PRX. Remember I forgot that I met you Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and we're sharing our favorite songs about witches, just in time for Halloween. Jim, you're up next. I am, Greg, and I know you love uh, this band as well. Monster Magnet, led by the absolutely devilish Dave Windorf uh, of Red Bank, New Jersey, fellow mm-hmm. homeboy in Jersey. Um, you know, there was a real high point in the late 90s, early 2000s, when Dave's stoner rock band, Monster Magnet, was ascended, even made it onto the charts with a track uh, called Space Lord from this album I'm going to highlight, Power Trip in 1998. The great thing about Dave is uh, he's super smart, he's very funny, uh, and uh, you know he really loved and understood inside out, upside down, psychedelic metal, stoner rock, uh, you know, just hard rock, and, and could play with all the tropes um, and, and appeal to you on, on one level just as banging your head on the wall, but on another, thinking about it while you were banging your head on, against the wall. 19 Witches is less obvious, I think, than any other witch song we're highlighting uh, for this Halloween show. Um, you know, no direct mention, really, 
of the witch. A lot of bizarre lyrics about a snake inside a jar and a psychotic submarine. And I was born in Vietnam, a sacrifice. Um, kind of like Season of the Witch, an overall theme of impending doom. 19 witches, why are there 19, not 20? I, I do not know. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I leave this for you to ponder at home in front of the lava lamp while uh, preparing to hand out, socially distanced, uh, Halloween candy. Monster <laughs> Magnet, 19 witches on Sound Opinions. Teen Witches by the Mighty Monster Magnet. And boy, do I miss that band. It was a great band. <laughs> they were so entertaining on so many levels. Dave Windorf, uh, a really smart guy. You know, you Absolutely. may not think so, but he's like one of the smartest guys we've ever interviewed. For sure. And I, I do miss them. I'm going to go to uh, Radiohead next, Jim. I think that people who said they couldn't make great singles anymore uh, were uh, put on notice in 2016 when they came out with Burn the Witch. I just think that is one of the most stunning songs of the last decade. Uh, and it was the uh, opening track on a moon-shaped pool, their 2016 album. It's a song that they had been working on for almost a couple of decades. It started around the Kid A era, uh, around the turn of the century, and they'd been working on it for subsequent albums, never quite got it where they wanted it. Uh, but the key to the track was uh, the string section that they had on Johnny Greenwood, the, ma the maestro, of the string arrangements on Radiohead Records, um, was working on this, and they hit upon the idea of having the strings uh, played with guitar plectrums to give them a more of a percussive sound, and that really adds to the mood of this uh, of this particular record. Uh, so that you know the, the 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 strings are chopping along, and then they become progressively more diabolical uh, sounding as the song progresses. And you know the the, the idea here is is you know, burn the witch, the Salem witch trials, the whole idea of a witch hunt, mob rule, you know, people deciding who, who, is, who is with us, who's against us. You know, if you don't look like me, if you don't think like me, uh, if you make me feel uncomfortable, you know, we can, we're going to get you. That, that whole attitude. And, and, and York was talking about the idea of, you know, the immigrant crisis constantly going on where people were constantly pointing at the other and saying, you don't belong here. 
you know, and there's been variations on this throughout human history. And just we're in the midst of the latest incarnation of this horrible trend uh, even now. Uh, a song that remains relevant, sadly so. Burn the Witch from Radiohead on Sound Opinions. Radiohead with Burn the Witch on Sound Opinions. Jim, you've got another song about witches for us, right? I do. I'm going to wrap up uh, my witch picks, Greg, with a tune by Betty LeVette. Um, Betty LeVette's one of those great uh, stories in the history of R&B or soul. She started singing in her bedroom really young and uh, went uh, in, in two weeks' time from uh, bedroom entertaining her parents to having a, a song at number seven on the R&B charts while she was living in Detroit. My man, he's a loving man. And then nothing from Betty. <laughs> All the way from 1963, really. I mean, she was recording, but never dented the charts or the yeah. popular consciousness she deserved again until 2005 mm-hmm. um, with an album called I've Got My Own Hell to Raise. I think many people today who know Betty LeVette as a, a, a great singer in soul, blues, rock and roll, funk, gospel, country music, all of that, know her from 2005 without knowing the young woman in Detroit uh, who gave us witchcraft in the air. First single hit big, second single didn't do anything, and the third single did even less. This was the third single. Witchcraft in the Air, though, is a great good time Halloween song. It starts with the sound of the witches cackling. Mm. (laughs) And then, you know, various points in the tune, we get the cauldron bubbling in the background. It's it's a good nature, I think, a good natured fun portrait of witches. Again, I'm I'm pro witch, Greg. I'm a hundred (laughs) percent. Witch, and uh, I, I hate to see them denigrated unjustly. I think this is one of those great, uh, yeah, let's, you know, life is better when you're a witch songs. Witchcraft in the Air by Betty LeBette.
1963. That song's a year older than me. Witchcraft in the Air, Betty LeBan. I love that. Betty it's Le- amazing. What Her voice was just incredible back then. It's amazing that she, it took her so long to really catch on. But uh, Betty LeBan's been great for a long time. And I think uh, the sentiment in that song, Florence Welch would certainly agree with it. Florence Welch of Florence and the Machine fame. Uh, you know, you, I don't know if you've ever interviewed Florence, but she is a hoot. She is just uh, really uh, a fun, vibrant interview subject. And she talks openly about being a kid, just being this weird kid who was into the supernatural as sort of, uh, you know, as a child, as a diversion from what was going on in her household. Her, her parents were going through a divorce. And, and, you know, she would fantasize, I'm a witch, and her friends, they would play, mm. you know, we're, we're in this coven, and we're doing these kind of weird experiments, you know, and we're going to make these boys fall in love with us by casting a spell on them. And she took that concept uh, into the How Big, How Blue, How Beautiful album in 2015. She, she conceived of it as sort of the uh, idea of a, um, a modern-day Hollywood witch story, you know? What happens if we take this idea of a witch casting a spell and it goes awry and, and put it and set it in this uh, decadent place called Hollywood, which was where she was uh, staying at the time. Um, so that's, that's the sense behind this song called Witch Witch. Um, you know, the fact that she was able to sort of take this childhood fantasy and bring it up to date in this very adult world that she was now finding herself in, you know, is, is fascinating. And, 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 I, and I think it, to me, it, it sort of indicates the lasting uh, imprint that Halloween leaves on us. You know, it's one of those children holidays that we never quite uh, grow up and become like, oh, we're over that. It's the, it, there's stuff about that that still lingers. I don't know about you. But oh, I, I don't trust anybody who doesn't love Halloween. It, it is. I, I think it's just the most amazing uh, holiday, if you could, could call it that. True. You know. And uh, here we have Florence and the Machine uh, celebrating it. Which witch on Sound Opinions? And it's my old heart and measured inside and it's an old Witch from Florence and the Machine, and that wraps up our segment about witches. But uh, you still have a role to play, listeners. If you've got a good song about witches that we missed, 
Let us know on Facebook or Twitter. Coming up, we look at what makes D'Angelo's Voodoo album so potent over 20 years after its release. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago and distributed by PRX. Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott, he's Jim DeRogatis, and that's a little bit of the song Playa Playa by D'Angelo, the first track off his 2000 album Voodoo. Today we're doing a classic album dissection of that record for its 20th anniversary. The story of Voodoo and what followed is absolutely fascinating. It absolutely is, Greg. And before we dive into talking about the record, let's give some background about who D'Angelo is as an artist. He was born Michael Eugene Archer in 1974, grew up in Richmond, Virginia, the surrounding area, came up in the church as the son of a Pentecostal preacher and fell in love with music, especially classic soul, R&B, and funk. And you can hear those influences all over his songs, was originally part of that neo-soul movement. People in, in that genre getting back to, uh, you know, recording with real instruments away from synthesized productions. Um, after being a member of a couple of different groups, he signed in 1991, age 17, to EMI. And he worked as a songwriter until his debut in 1995, the Brown Sugar record. Now, Brown Sugar was a huge hit, Jim, and uh, many felt at the time that this young artist, D'Angelo, was taking up the mantle from greats like uh, Marvin Gaye with those sultry vocals and those very soulful songs. But around this time, he took a step uh, in a different direction. He joined the musical collective The Soulquarians, which included artists like Questlove, Jay Dilla, Erica Badu, Common, Mos Def, and Q-Tip, to name just a few. His next album, his number two album, Voodoo, is the reason we are here today. It didn't come out until five years after Brown Sugar. He was experiencing some serious writer's block, and he felt the pressure from his label and the public to release new music that upped the ante on what he had done previously. It took a while, but eventually we got Voodoo, which was well worth the wait. At least you and I thought so. <laughs> I remember us talking endlessly in 2000 mm. about how mystical, magical, entrancing this album was. 13 tracks, iconic songs like Devil's Pie, Send It On, and Feel Like Making Love. It didn't, however, have the commercial impact that Brown Sugar had. It's weirder, it's more experimental, uh, but it still added to his status as a sex symbol, which at times threatened to overshadow the music. Yeah, that's true, Jim. And uh, to take a deeper look at Voodoo, we're joined by Faith Pennick. Faith is a filmmaker and writer and also an author of a fantastic 33 and a third book on Voodoo. She's a fan of this record and an expert on it. Welcome to Sound Opinions, Faith. Thank you both for having me. Voodoo, I think, is the dirtiest record ever made. Not dirty as in salacious, but I put this album on and I, I smell the chicken grease. I smell it frying, man. You know, it's like, this is a dirty gumbo is the word you used, you know, and very carnal, but not in a misogynistic way. Right. It's interesting. 
interesting because I don't think of voodoo as dirty. I mean, I don't. I mean, I guess it define dirty because I think people hear dirty and of course they think sex. Um, no, or no, just no. Being... I'm talking about chicken grease and and rolling in the swamp mud. So you're talking about like yeah, like a right dirt in a metaphorical sense. No, I mean, I, I in that sense, yeah. I think you're I think you're correct. He's southern. He's a southern boy, and I think the album embraces that. I think it embraces his experiences as a young black man. It's got to be sort of dirty and sort of raw because life is dirty and raw. You know, it, it life is not polished. I mean, you know, I think the one thing I hope will come out of 2020 is stuff happens and it can get messy and there are things you can't Real control messy. and it will f yeah. up your life. You know, so. You mentioned the, the word dirty and chicken grease came up with that song, uh, Faith, but I, I, I think you get at the reasons why the album sounds that way by sort of the textural components and the way the music was played, the groove sl- uh, being slower than uh, people would anticipate for a contemporary R&B record. Playing behind the beat, or right. the willingness to sort of tolerate mistakes. What was the beginning point of that sort of way of thinking? I mean, they clearly were not wanting to make a straight-up commercial R&B record. When did that become clear that that had to be the direction? I think it's pretty clear that he did a complete 180 from Brown Sugar. Let me tell you about this girl. Maybe I should. I met her in Philly, and her name was Brown Sugar. See, we've been making love constantly. That's why my eyes are a shade. Blood burning. I think he, D'Angelo himself, probably felt like, wow, you know, I've got more in me. I have more interesting things to say, more intricate ways to express my musicality, my emotions, and that Brown Sugar was scratching the surface. And I think this is where his friendship with Russell Elevato, his engineer, he met Russell Elevato, ironically, through his ex, Angie Stone, and D'Angelo was looking for someone to replace Bob Power to uh, mix the rest of Brown Sugar, which was still unfinished at the time. So Russell Elevato came on, they hit it off immediately. They were like, you know, two brothers from different mothers. And, you know, I think Elevato really encouraged D'Angelo to, you know, push the envelope and really, you know, sort of get more raw, nastier, not as not as pristine, not as polished as brown sugar is, you know, but really sort of, you know, embrace the dirt, if you will. And I think that was their intent from the very beginning. And they brought on people who were in sync with that. D'Angelo hired musicians who are, you know, at the time, were, in some cases still are, at the top of their game and were open to improvisation and, like you said, playing behind the beat. I mean, Pino Palladino, who played bass on a lot of the album, 
talked about and that was hard for him because he he you know yeah. that wasn't necessarily an easy thing for him to do he was like i don't know what this is but I'm, i will figure it out would it be he can play whatever he wants i mean he just he's just that good and that versatile and and that's why d'angelo wanted him on the album similar to yeah. charlie yeah. hunter uh, who's another, you know, great uh, bass and guitar player who comes out of the jazz tradition. Ditto Roy Hargrove, the late Roy Hargrove, James Poyser. The lineup he had, are, you know, he just had people who could just play what, if you say play this in, you know, in this time signature, you know, in this way, you know, standing on your head on fire, they would be able to, they're like, yes, okay, we can do that. Yeah. To be able to attract uh musicians of that caliber on your album says a lot about you as an artist and that it proves you know that you know d'angelo is an artist that pretty much anybody who's who's good enough or you know would want to work with but also it just shows how open-minded they were as far as like yes we want to do some different things we you know it's a br oh, yeah. it's a brilliant album but it's also a, a fun it's a fun album to listen to because you you just feel the I mean the passion is so there it's not there's there's not a false note or a false sense of emotion on that album A big component of D'Angelo's image at this time was his sexuality. It was in the music, as well as in videos like the one for Untitled, How Does It Feel, in which he is, gasp, shirtless. <laughs> in your book, Faith, you talk about how women and many others loved that video. One thing I didn't realize was how many people, specifically black men, thought D'Angelo was gay. Well, I don't know. Either they thought he was gay or they just resented him to no end they were so put off by what they perceived as homoerotica that you know because here's this man with no shirt on presumably naked singing directly into the camera and they're like well what is this and, and it's, but uh, but here's the thing though and this this is what i always find interesting about it is that that he wasn't d'angelo wasn't the only black man with no shirt on in a music video at that time you had ll cool j made his career you know, on being shirtless in music videos. <laughs> never you know? wearing a shirt. Yeah, he never wore a shirt. Did, did he own a shirt? I mean, you know, ditto yeah. DMX, ditto Tupac, yeah. ditto. I mean, you can. Yeah. I can go down the list of. I mean, I, I think Joe see I mean, just how many black men had their shirts off in music videos and no one cared. But oh my God, Untitled comes out, and I think this is why black men got mad and wanted to call D'Angelo gay because they couldn't deal with it. They were mad because that video was made for. The, the 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 female gaze it was made for women to look at particularly black women and the black boyfriends husbands significant others fathers they just couldn't deal they just were like well why are you watching you know because women would like shush people when that video came on like wherever they were they were just in you know they would be like get out of my room or get out of my house and the Let me, let me know. Oh, oh, oh. 
Correct me if I, I'm wrong, though, and I'm, I'm obviously talking from a white male perspective, but I also think there is a, a sexuality that is... Um, so you're talking as a woman who's being struck by that, but it almost transcends male or female, like some of those voodoo gods. And you see the 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 uh, statues, right. right? The icons. It, you don't know, are they male, are they female? It's just like raw sex, period. No, that's a good, that's a very good point, Jim. And again, this is, I think it's a difference from like a lot of the other men that I mentioned, the performers who had their shirts off. I think, in this case, D'Angelo was like, you know, instead of being aggressive, he was being submissive. He was like, you can have me. I am yours. This is for you. And I think that is the difference. So that, to me, that that extends beyond sex and sex appeal. That's about, like, uh, so again, submission and saying, I am giving myself to you. And that's why black women, and I mean, women across races but women in general just lost their minds but black women in particular like because there was just nothing nobody was singing to women on mtv like no one none of these music i mean not in that way it was very like you can get out i'm gonna do this to you and da 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 and it was again very sort of you know very masculine in your face whereas this was like it's in your face but in a in a different way and we just weren't used to that you know, but I think it's a sexuality that was nuanced. And I think, frankly, that got lost in the conversation around the entitled video. I, I think there's so many misinterpretations of the nuances in there. Uh, and I, I feel like your book alludes to the idea that those got lost, especially on the subsequent concert tour. Yes. Uh, where I think he uh, started to feel that he was being perceived as this sexual being. And that was it. And everybody else was sort of missing the layers that were in his music. I mean, and boy, it, it was a, there was a series of meltdowns and arrests after that. Yeah. I mean, can we really draw that line from that sense of they're missing the point to, you know, I'm going silent for the next two decades, basically? <laughs> um, yeah, I can. Um, I did so in the book. I think definitely the pressure of being... I mean, it, 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 it makes me think of the saying, you know, be careful what you wish for because you might get it. And when he mm-hmm. made the entitled video, which was his uh, ex-manager's uh, idea, the late Dominique Trenier, um, and he did it, Trenier and D'Angelo did it because they wanted him to make a splash. They didn't just want Voodoo to come out and rest on its, rest on its laurels as an album, which obviously... It could have, and it does, but they wanted they wanted that M- they wanted MTV eye- eyeballs. They wanted BET eyeballs. They wanted they wanted it to be a sensation. So they you know the the entitled video was made, and unfortunately, I do think that the video overshadowed the Voodoo album. And so yes, when he went on tour, when D'Angelo went on tour in two thousand, and I I saw him twice on that tour, and there were women in the front rows screaming take it off throwing panties on stage grabbing at him trying to rip his clothes off and i think yeah at a certain point he got tired of that because first and foremost he is a musician he isn't he's a singer he's an artist d'angelo wants to be taken seriously he's not just there to be ogled at and you sort of touched like he's you know a ken doll and and it's funny because you know and actually i i interviewed his current manager alan leeds for the book and he said at the time he was his tour manager um 
for the Voodoo Tour in 2000. And he said, I thought D'Angelo would like this. I mean, what man wouldn't like to be the focus of all of these women who want to sleep with you? I mean, but I think they, he and Trenier, Leeds and Trenier underestimated D'Angelo's sensitivity and they didn't prepare yeah. him for it. And so, yeah, it mm-hmm. it really took its toll because he couldn't just be, when you hit that level of fame, you can't just go home and just be be normal and be Michael again. Africa is my descent And here I'm far from home I dwell within the land that's meant Make for many men but the, that D'Angelo tour was something. That's one that uh, I'll never forget because yeah, it, like was just, it was just it was just spectacular. Yeah. And you know, I I've seen him since. I mean, obviously he's he's come back, and and the shows have been good. But that was that was a singular tour. There were so many uh, com- complex emotions going through him at the time. I think that's why we got the show we got back then. Right. Oh yeah. I mean, he was again. He was working out a lot of things. In real time, I mean, uh, superstardom, and I'm not sure who he was dating at the time, but I'm sure that was probably a part of it because love, (laughs) you know, romantic love always seems to be a part of D'Angelo's musical, you know, expression. Um, You know, and he, I think when he toured at that point, he had had a second child. So, I mean, yeah, he was going, he was dealing with a lot of stuff and, you know, at a, at, at still, again, a very young age. And, you know, working that out while still touring, while still promoting his album. And I think that took its toll. And I think he just decided, you know what, I'm I'm piecing out on this. I'm not, you know, even when he came back, you know, in 2014 with Black Messiah. I mean, he toured, you know, but he did not, um, you know, do a lot of press. And, you know, I think at this point, mm-hmm. he pretty no, much is just no. like shut down as far as the, you know, doing any kind of promotional uh, work for any you know, to, to, to what extent faith do you think it was like Brian Wilson made pet sounds Kevin Shields made uh, loveless with my bloody Valentine uh, you know Jeff Mangum made those two neutral milk hotel records all considered masterpieces all followed by like two decades each of silence or or, or in Wilson's case just very sporadic output you right. know I mean do you think he was do you think he knew I created one of the best albums of all time, not just in the genre of R&B or soul right. or whatever you want to go. And like, how do I, how the hell do I follow this up? I don't know. I'm going on vacation. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, that's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I, I did not, and I, I tried to, but I did not interview D'Angelo for this book. I would have loved to. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, yeah, I just speaking for myself, I don't know how you follow up something like Voodoo. I mean, to me, you know, that, that is his pinnacle. That is, I don't, and I mean, I, again, when Black Messiah came out in 2014, I like the album. I think it's good, but it's not voodoo. I mean, to me, I, I, and it's obvious that he sort of picked up where voodoo left off. And, and it's funny because I know a lot of people who are like, I love Black Messiah. They love that album. And I think in a way, because, you know, they had time, you know, they were able to catch up to voodoo. They had like basically a decade and a half to, have voodoo grow on them and sort of prepare them for Black Messiah until when Black Messiah came out. And also, you know, it's just sort of like, oh, okay. In a way, I mean, D'Angelo caught up with it because, you know, he put out Black Messiah in his mid-40s. So in a way, it's like, okay, now this is the album we would expect 
a, a mid 40s genius to put out as opposed to someone in his early 20s. Um, yeah, so yeah. I don't I don't know. I don't know if that was I mean, I'm sh- that I know he had writer's block even when he was writing voodoo. And that's part of why it took so long to finish. So I wouldn't be shocked if writer's block didn't I mean, on top of depression and having losses in his personal life and just all of the, the post voodoo post untitled stuff that really sort of rained down on him. Yeah, he, it probably did. He probably was like, I'm just going to take a vacation for 10 some odd years. 20 years. Yeah, I mean, well. right. You know? <laughs> uh, although, although I have to say, it wasn't just a vacation. I mean, you know, there were drugs, there were, there were alcohol abuse and, yeah. and that horrible car, car crash. crash in 05 where I was worried like, oh, God, this is the end. And, you know, I'm just glad. I mean, and honestly, I think if he never recorded another note, I was just glad that he survived that. Um, just to be with his family and his children, the people who care about him. And um, but yeah, so it, it did get it, it got very dark. Um, and so it wasn't just a vacation. It did get very dark. And I'm glad that it, at least it seems like right now he's healthy and, you know, still working on music. We have been talking to Faith Panic, the author of Voodoo, a uh, deep dive into the making of that record. Faith, it's been great talking to you. Thank you both for having me. Stay safe. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, you know, we're going to take a deep dive into the legacy of President Jimmy Carter. I mean, here was a guy who transformed the connection between politics and rock and roll. We're going to tell you how he did it. Yeah, revisiting 1980, we've also got uh, a chat with Hanif Abdul-Rakib. For more sound opinions, download our podcast wherever you get such thingies. As always, thank you to you, our Patreon supporters. The show was produced by Andrew Gill and Alex Claiborne. 